Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Lizzie, have you been Googling yourself? <laughs> every day, Stephen. <laughs> if not every hour. <laughs> I mean, you should be. Uh, apparently, we're famous now. If you haven't heard yesterday's episode of the podcast, we spoke to Andy Haldane, the chief economist of the former. Bank of England. Former chief economist, thank you, of the Bank of England, uh, telling us that the Bank of England should have cut rates already. And if they don't do it soon, they risk putting the economy into deeper recession causing a little bit of a stir, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, well, let us gloat for a moment. It was followed by all the UK national newspapers. It was played on some of the other broadcasters. And most importantly, it was put to the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, at the Treasury Select Committee by its chair, Harriet Baldwin. Take a listen. And Governor, you saw Andy Haldane's remarks yesterday about being concerned (coughs) that the bank will be seen as having been too late to start tightening and then potentially too late to start easing. What are your reactions to that? Well, let me. I thought there was a lot of emphasis again on this point about the recession, um, and not as much emphasis on the point I made earlier about the fact that there is a also a strong story, particularly on uh, the labour market, actually also on household incomes. I mean, last year real household income grew by 1.8 percent. That's real household incomes, and I think the question you know, for us is, you know. We've seen quite quite, you know, quite a strong labour market. We've seen quite a strong household real income. It hasn't really come through to consumption. So is absolutely right on that point. Um, you know what will happen you know, this year will be interesting on that front. But I would emphasise just on this point about the recession. I mean, I think it's we have a very precise description the definition of a recession in this country is two, two successive quarters of negative GDP growth. Um, the two successive quarters, i.e. Q3 and Q4 last year, I think cumulatively add up to minus 0.5% on, on GDP. If you look at recessions going back to the 1970s, this is um, you know, the weakest by a long way because the range, I think, for the, those two, the, the numbers for those two quarter numbers for all the previous recessions was something like 2.5% to 22% in terms of lost negative GDP. So, Minus 0.5 is a very weak recession. But how does the UK economy grow if you have uh, risks of inflation uh, even when you're in recession? I'm, I'm just well, I think there's, there's two ways the UK grows. First of all, by, res- by restoring price stability. That's a condition for stable growth. Um, and I think we're well on the way to doing that. But we have, we have to get, as I said earlier on, to this point where it's sustainable. And then the second thing is, and, and this is part of the, you know, the narrow path we're having to walk here, is that we've got weak supply side. 
slight growth in this country. We have had for some time. And so clearly to get more, you know, to get faster growth, we do need to see you know, stronger growth. We've had, large net mi- inward, we've had large net inward migration. Is that not a supply side? But also, I mean, the, the, there's an important part of the story on the supply side, I think, which comes through from investment and productivity growth as well. I would, I would emphasize that. Now, again, I think, however, s- sustained stable prices and sustained inflation around targets is a condition for having, you know, I think, I think, you know, stronger, stronger supply side growth. So that again is a condition. But those are the things we need. So you heard there the governor playing down the recession that the UK is already in, but emphasising the risk of the labour market and the wage inflation that's stubbornly high in his opinion and therefore the need to wait and see before the bank cuts rates. Yeah, indeed. And look, there's plenty of interesting comments to unpack there. We wanted to bring in Bloomberg Opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth. Andy Haldane, not the only one who wants interest rate cuts. In fact, very presciently, Marcus, you wrote a piece last Friday saying that it was... uh, the UK economy was crying out for rate cuts. So what we want to know is, uh, did you have a secret meeting with Andy Haldane to organise? Well, all I can say is I evidently, as I think we both know, uh, I have a face for radio because I had written in that that uh, Haldane had said, you know, very similar comments last week. And uh, I, and I just agree with him, which is Swati Dengra, Andy Haldane, there is some sanity there. Uh, I, I, they can clearly see what I can see, which I, I hope a lot of people can see, but evidently not. Uh, eight other members of the Monetary Policy Committee. Um, though comments today from Bailey suggest that uh, finally things are maybe starting to get through his skull, that there are plenty of signs out there. you just got to look for them. Um, there's a saying up north that's now sublime that those who can't see, but uh, mm. won't see, pardon me. But um, Sound uh, like my dad. Yeah, <laughs> well, my, my father as well. But, you know, basically the point is, is that, you know, there is a lot of signs out there. The Labour data, which we've been stressing over and perhaps was behind uh, most if not all of the 14 hikes that the Bank of England um, uh, you know, basically uses as, as rationale for why they hike rates has proven to be woefully inaccurate. Um, we've got plenty of information for an anecdotal labour survey that pay is falling quite sharply and is down into the comfort zone uh, which is the 2% target plus a bit of productivity. Should we call it 3 to 3.5 three area? Um, at the same time inflation is going straight there to 2% and probably lower. What I cannot understand, which is why they seem to think that inflation is magically going to rise again in, in, in the back half of, of this year. I, I don't I know. I know there's some base effects, but bar that, I mean, the momentum is undeniable and I don't know why they cannot see it. And they should be, as Andy Haldane said, they should have already cut rates. So, so things like, sorry, Marcus, things like the Red Sea disruption to shipping, things like that, you're not worried about that. You're not worried about another uptick in energy prices when we go into the winter? Absolutely not. Okay. No. But you don't know what's going to happen in the Middle East. True, but we've seen a lot. They've lobbed a lot of rockets at various things. And yes, there have been some ship uh, transfers across around the Cape of Good Hope and all the various stuff like that. But, you know, practically speaking, we're not seeing it through. You know, producer price food inflation is at zero in this country. You know, we've seen uh, CPI in the food economy has gone from eight straight down to seven. It's going to go down to zero as well. It's a six-month lag on it. Like there's a six- to nine-month lag on most of all these indicators, which the Bank of England actually knows about but refuses to see it so yes service inflation is slightly higher but it will come down but of course the bank of england doesn't operate in a vacuum and 
There's also the Federal Reserve in the US and the European Central Bank as well to consider. We were talking to Raffaella Tenconi, the chief economist at ADA Economics, this morning on the radio. She actually thinks the Bank of England will cut rates before the Fed because of the reason you cite, that UK growth is weaker. But is there any way you actually see that happening when, first of all, the Bank of England didn't get much credit for being the first to hike rates? <laughs> and secondly, it would absolutely smash the pound. Uh, I'm not sure the pound would get that much affected by it personally. Uh, as Bailey's pointing out, there are some signs of strength, particularly in the service sector. Um, so the pound seems perfectly resistant and you know as you quite know from many, long experience the bankman doesn't really care about the pound very much uh, and as as far as its effects are concerned the weaker pound is better clearly for the service sector um and the manufacturing sector doesn't seem to get much better for it so in some senses the pounds level i don't think is the predominant um capability obviously it collapsed in, in, in an unsightly way that might change but you know we, we've seen some information out of the european central bank showing that wages are actually only rising at a four and a half percent rate rather than four point seven prior. You know, there's there's decent signs coming through in a also very very weak European economy that they need to cut interest rates sharply. Uh, I think the same story that, that, that for the Bank of England as it is for the ECB, they both need to get their act together and get on with it. I just think ECB's been better explaining that, laying it out. The Fed is in a different world. They are in a much much stronger economy, and they are can take their time. As I've argued before, unfortunately. The uncoupling from the Fed needs to be done by a braver Bank of England. But is this just signalling that we need now, that there will be rate cuts coming, that doing more like the ECB and being better at explaining it, or is it actually doing it now? Is it not a better idea to just wait and see? Well, I think we've seen it today from Bailey, actually, that uh, he's already starting to, to shift. I think he realised he has to. It's embarrassing for him when his former chief economist has basically laid it out. It's patently obvious. And we've had one very eloquent member of the MPC who speaks in a bit, also laying out the case, and has been, funnily off, the only policymaker of all the major central banks to actually vote for a, a rate cut. So she's ahead of the curve um, and deserves the accolades. But to go back to your earlier point very quickly, Lizzie, on whether or not the Bank of England should have got credit for being the first to raise interest rates. One, they fuffed around for on the November 22 and uh, let wait for another six weeks to finally do it in December by 10 basis points or 15 basis points. And then they let the Fed overtake them and completely take the hold that they, they could see what was in front of them and they failed to follow through and they inched it up far too slowly. And that, that is their, unfortunately, their, yes, they had the first mover advantage, but they've also been the most aggressive on uh, quantitative tightening with their active policy, which is another major mistake of theirs. But we'll go into that another time. Perhaps. Yes, we will have to, Marcus, because I love talking to you about all of this. You've given us the international context, but of course, this is really at the heart of the political agenda at the moment. Thanks for coming on the programme. My pleasure. Now to a different story. Birmingham Council has announced the largest budget cut ever made by a local authority. It plans to make £150 million of cuts and raise t- council tax by 21% to address its financial issues. The council even dimming lights in the evenings in an attempt to claw back cash. Well, to discuss, we're joined by Ian Murray, who's Director of Public Financial Management at the Chartered Institute of Public Finance and Accountancy. Ian, great to have you with us on the programme. C- can you put this package of cuts in perspective? For it. We know Birmingham Council has had its financial difficulties. In terms of an austerity package, how serious is this? How significant is this? I mean, so clearly uh, it's significant. It's. Uh, I, I think the key thing, though, is you have to 
you have to look beyond that headline number and uh, and also acknowledge the scale of the council. So Birmingham is the largest council in Western Europe, um, and so obviously spending uh, huge amounts of, of public money. But but these these cuts are are significant, and obviously those council tax increases uh, over two years, I think it is, uh, are also going to be be significant. So. Um, they're not things that will have been done lightly, but in the situation that Birmingham finds itself in, they're, uh, they obviously seem to be necessary. Yeah. So it's obviously significant if you live in Birmingham, but is it significant on a national level? Is Birmingham an anomaly here? Uh, no, I, I don't think Birmingham is an, uh, an anomaly. And actually, if you looked at the council tax, uh, actually last year, uh, there were a number of councils who had council tax rises either near 10% or, or even over. So uh, residents in Croydon, Thurrock, Woking and other councils who have reached that position of financial distress will have also seen council tax rising as, as a result. And similarly, I think services reducing. So uh, I think the size of Birmingham means that it uh, maybe draws more attention, but it's not, uh, it, it's not unfortunately a, a complete outlier. I think more generally, if we were if you were talking to uh, local authorities at the moment, uh, the general message you would get back is that it, it is incredibly difficult to balance the books at the moment. A number of councils who have just been through a really difficult budget setting round would reflect that they've been able to balance the books this year, but they're increasingly worried about what that might mean next year and the year after. Um, so I don't think uh, Birmingham are a complete outlier, but the the scale of the council and the, the the problems that they face obviously means that it maybe draws a bit more attention. Has it taken Birmingham a long time to come up with this cutting plan? I mean, they did effectively declare bankruptcy right in this section one one four notice in in September of last year. Uh, so, so, I mean, I think uh, I think these things do take time. I would think there aren't. Um, there isn't a council out there that isn't uh, at, at any point in time looking at how it's balancing its books and what it might need to do. So I think a lot of the groundwork will already have been have been laid. Um, I suppose some of this is about the timing. So uh, obviously, like all organisations, there's a business cycle in place and, and the budget setting uh, for local authorities happens at this, at this time of year. So uh, you need to set a budget and you need to set council tax um, uh, by the end of February for, for, for it to be in place for the coming financial year. So a lot of the work will have gone on behind the scenes over those months, uh, and this is the sort of the, the culmination of uh, of that work. Um, but I would think that some of these things were already in play uh, and were already being considered uh, even before the the one one four notice was issued. What's pretty crazy is that we're talking about a rise in council tax by twenty one percent against a backdrop of speculation about tax cuts at the spring budget, even though the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has said perhaps he won't have the fiscal headroom to deliver that. Given the scale of local government financial distress, is all this talk of space for tax cuts an illusion? I suppose it's a political decision ultimately, isn't it? So if you have uh, if you have headroom, uh, you can make a decision to use that to fund public services, uh, or you can use that to provide uh, to provide tax cuts to, uh, uh, to to residents. So so ultimately, that's a that that, that is a political decision. Um, yeah, it does feel uh, <laughs> there is a dichotomy there clearly. Uh, uh, but but it's about uh, it's about the political political choices that um, that the chancellor can, can make. Um, it, local government has seen more funding come its way uh, 
uh, from draft to final settlement. Um, so there were, a few weeks ago, an extra 600 million was announced. Um, if you plot that against what some say the size of the gap is at the moment, so I think county council network have a gap of a billion pounds from from their members, and the local government association is currently talking about a four billion a four billion pound gap in local government funding. Whilst that extra money helps, it, it obviously doesn't solve uh, what the sector sees as the underlying uh, the underlying gap and the underlying issue. And how significant is that underlying issue? We've spoken to the local government association on this program before about the financial difficulties facing uh, many councils. But is this something that is a general issue, and and does it just require more money from central government? So I think um, more money would obviously help, but whether it's uh, the totality of the the solution, I, I, I I'm not I'm not convinced. Um, I, I mean, I think the issues are very real. Local government has uh, been through you know, through austerity, has done less well uh, than other bits of the the public sector, uh, and I suppose that that period of uh, of austerity means that a lot of the underlying resilience that would have been in the sector at one point in time, I think, has been has been stripped away. And that's why you're seeing these uh, when councils uh, reach this point of crisis, they're having to they're having to you know, take action such as the ones we're seeing at, at Birmingham uh, announced announced uh, today. Um, so I do think there is an issue there, but uh, but I don't think it's just about money. Uh, I do think there are some questions we need to ask about what is the role of local government? What is it that we want our public services to provide for us? Uh, and then how do we how do we fund them? So. More money would obviously help, uh, but it's not necessarily uh, the totality of, of the answer. And maybe it's a time for some more fundamental questions to be asked about the role and remit of local authorities uh, and everything that they do. All right. Thanks, Ian. Ian Murray, Director of Public Financial Management at the Chartered Institute of Public Finance and Accountancy. Thanks for being on the programme. And of course, all very important to think about those issues with Birmingham Council ahead of the local elections coming up in May as well, and whether or not cuts to public services will become the dominant issues in those campaigns as well. Well, let's turn to more pressures from a budget point of view. Ahead of the budget, we're just over two weeks away now from the March 6th budget. Business groups are hoping for more help after the full expensing tax break that was made permanent in the autumn statement. British Chambers of Commerce Director Siobhan Haviland says the budget must outline the sustainable growth plan businesses are crying out for. It comes as a new report from Goldman Sachs says the UK is struggling to convert small business creation into high-growth companies. We've been discussing this with Charlotte Keenan, head of Goldman Sachs' 10,000 Small Business Programme. The UK remains one of the best places in the world to start a business, but we are absolutely struggling to convert these businesses into high-growth, productive businesses. And indeed, the numbers that we have today are about 3,000 businesses, what we call productivity heroes, lower than where we were in 2007-8. And if we're going to help boost the economy, stimulate growth, uh, uh, combat the productivity puzzle, we need to do more to help these scale-up businesses. What is the single biggest obstacle facing UK companies? that are trying to scale up? Oh, well, I'd say the thing that our businesses have told us is talent. And over half of them, 55%, in fact, have said that they are struggling to attract and retain the right levels of talent in their businesses. Clearly, this is critical for their growth. Uh, More than that... 
12% said uh, that only 12% thought that they found the education system fit for purpose in creating that next generation of, of talent in terms of the right employability skills. So we need to do everything that we can smartly to think about getting talent into these businesses, whether that's domestically or internationally. Finance, another big thing, 37% said they're struggling to access the type of finance that they need in this country. But look, this is against a, a background of, um, and they are still optimistic. Are these problems that require a government-led solution, or are there, you know, when you talk about access to finance, for example, is that problems in the financial industry that aren't facilitating companies that need to be able to raise more finance to grow, or is this something that needs to be tackled at a government level? Well, the reason that we've published this manifesto, and it's no accident that it's in an election year, is that our businesses are calling for government to take small businesses seriously and put small business policy at the heart of their decision making. Clearly, there's a role for government, there's a role for the private sector. Um, and look, looking at all of this together is really important. But what we would hope is that any government is taking taking these challenges, ultimately these opportunities, seriously and how we deliver growth for the UK. So that was Charlotte Keenan of Goldman Sachs speaking to us earlier. But is anyone in government actually going to want to listen to business groups ahead of the budget? Our UK government reporter Joe Mays is with us in the studio for analysis. Joe, we know everybody wants a piece of this budget given the proximity of the election. But is business actually going to be a priority for the Chancellor when they don't vote? You're right. I think it's going to be difficult for them. I mean, the election is coming and Jeremy Hunt, Richard Sunak are likely to prioritise measures that they can sell to voters on the doorstep. That's clearly going to be the main priority. But at the same time, I think businesses do see a kind of a chink of light, which is that the Chancellor said he wants to boost growth. And we know had these figures about the country being in recession in the second half of 2023. So he is going to be open to measures that might stimulate the economy. And that's where the business groups are trying to seize their opportunity and that's why they're saying look if you were to cut some of taxes for us that might help boost growth so they're, they're trying to tie it in that way and that's where i think they see some opportunity but even if that's maybe the responsible thing to do you wouldn't see the boost to growth anytime soon that is correct and that's for where it comes down to how public spirited is jeremy hunt as a chancellor and how willing is he to do things that will help the economy in perhaps two three four years time which might perhaps benefit a future government which may not be that of the conservative party uh yeah that's the question um but at the same time he might think that i want to have a message that i can send to voters which says no we do care about business we do care about growing the economy and that's why we're doing these measures so yeah, he could see some electoral gain but it's tricky um what apart from the simple thing of, of of tax cuts essentially, what else do business groups actually want from Jeremy Hunt? So I think it's worth reflecting on tax cuts just because they have many demands which fall broadly under that category. I mean, the big one being business rates, which is a real kind of bugbear for the industry. It's a flat fee that they pay based on the value of their premises. And it's going to go up in line with inflation on the September 2023 reading, which is six point uh, more than 6%. And they say that's too punitive and it should be perhaps more like 2%, which is what the inflation reading is expected to be in April of this year. So that, that's, a, that's a big request. Um, they also want to extend the full expensing policy, which Jeremy Hunt announced in the autumn statement, to apply to leased assets, rented assets. So again, another big big claim there. But in terms of other things, I think that skills shortages are always a bugbear for, for industry. They say that holds back growth. So they want to see uh, reform to the apprenticeship levy, for example. They want to see more money spent on training. 
Um, other measures, tax-free shopping for international visitors. They think that would boost tourism. That's another big request. So, yeah, there's, there's quite a list. Yeah, we were just talking about tax rises uh, because of the austerity impact on local councils. And yet, if businesses want tax cuts... Isn't the answer going to be, well, you already got them at the autumn statement when they made full expensing permanent and businesses actually benefited? I think that the response from the business community is that, yes, that tax cut was generous, but it would probably only be helping those companies, perhaps larger companies, who are doing big capital investments, spending money on machinery, spending money on you know big capital works. And that's not true for, for many businesses. So if you're an SME, for example, you're probably not going to be benefiting from the full expensing policy. And it would help you more if Jeremy Hunt, for example, raised a threshold at which you start paying VAT. It's currently £85,000. You know, the Federation of Small Businesses want that to be £100,000. That would be a more direct benefit to them. I mean, like retailers as well retailers aren't really going to be using full expensing you don't think very much they would be much more benefited by something like that business rates freeze we just talked about so yeah it, it's uh it, full expensing only helps some companies is ignoring calls from business groups a, a risk for the conservative given conservatives given this battle for the the title of party of business mantle that labor has been pushing so hard on I think it's something of a risk, but when it comes to balancing risks at a budget, I think the consideration for Jeremy Hunt will be it's probably a bigger risk to not go full throttle on measures which voters will see as very attractive and appealing and make it more likely to vote Conservative Party. So yes, a risk, but he has to weigh it against other things. And that's why I think that it's unlikely that business will get much in this budget. Do you think that horse has bolted? Has Labour already wooed business? Uh, they've certainly wooed them pretty hard, but you know it, it's not a done deal for them and that there's still scepticism in the business community about what Labour would do. But I think if you were to say now, broadly speaking, which party is the better party of business, I think many executives would, would lean towards Labour. OK, Joe Mays, our UK government reporter, thank you very much. I'm quite sure that business groups won't be the only ones writing long wish lists to Jeremy Hunt between now and the 6th of March. I wouldn't fancy managing his entry. No, everybody wants him. Look... There are going to be lots of kites flying between now and the budget. Lots of competing speculation that doesn't all add up. Let's see what the Treasury delivers on March the 6th. But the Shadow Chancellor rode back on that £28 billion pledge to spend on the green economy. And it's something that Andy Haldane was talking about. It brings us back to our conversation with him that whoever is running the Treasury needs to be bold with supply side measures to grow the economy. The thing is, when you've got such limited fiscal headroom and an election round the corner, is that what you're going to prioritise? Well, indeed, it's a very difficult set of decisions for Jeremy Hunt and the Treasury to be able to make before that date. But nonetheless, it's just over two weeks away and we're bound to be talking more about what is being expected of the budget day between now and then. But that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Woolcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.